Chapter Seven of the Brotherhood of the Seven Kings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings by L. T. Mead and Robert Eustace. Chapter Seven The Iron Circlet. Madame had left London, and my first wild hope was that she might not return. But this was quickly doomed to disappointment for two months after the events related in the last story, as I was walking down Welbeck Street, I noticed that the blinds in her house were up, that there were fresh curtains to the windows, and that the place bore all the usual marks of habitation. With a sinking heart I was just commenting on this fact when I saw the hall door open, and a slender, dark-eyed young woman run down the steps. She glanced at me, raised her brows very slightly as if she recognized me, half paused as if about to speak, then changed her mind and walked rapidly just a few paces in front of me down the street. I had certainly never seen her before, and pitying her as in all probability one of Madame's victims, went on my own way. In the course of the same afternoon I visited Dufrayer at his office. A glance at his face showed me that he had something to say. He drew me aside with a certain eagerness and began to speak. "'I really believe,' he cried, "'that the tide has turned at last.' madame is so emboldened by her success that she is certain to do something foolish she is back in town i interrupted i passed her house this morning and she returned about a fortnight ago interrupted dufrayer now listen head i have something to tell you you know that for a long time tyler's agents have been following madame colucci it was only yesterday morning that tyler drew my attention to a matter which looks uncommonly suspicious but read this advertisement for yourself as he spoke, Dufrayer handed me the times of a week back. Under the heading, Situations Vacant, he pointed to the following words. Wanted. A first-rate bacteriologist to advise on a matter of a very private nature. Handsome remuneration to anyone possessing the necessary knowledge. Apply, in strict privacy by letter only, to K.K., 350, Times Office, E.C. I put the paper down. What is there suspicious about that? I asked. "'At first sight one would think nothing,' was the answer. "'But Tyler is so alert that not a single thing escapes him now. "'The K.K. first aroused his sense of inquiry.' "'Catherine Colucci!' I cried. "'Surely if this were an advertisement put in by Madame, "'she would not, knowing how she is wanted, use her own initials.' "'It seems scarcely likely,' he answered. "'But I will tell you exactly what has happened. "'On seeing the advertisement, Tyler at once posted a man in the Times Advertisement Office, "'explaining his business to the clerks.' Tyler's man was instructed how to proceed. About eleven o'clock on the morning after the advertisement was first published, a person arrived, received two letters, and went away. Tyler's clerk immediately followed this man, who went straight to Madame Colucci's house. It was a lucky shot of Tyler's, and they are following up the scent closely. He has further discovered that they have engaged no less a person than the well-known bacteriologist James Lockhart to undertake this very mysterious business. His private laboratory is in Devonshire Street, the question now arises, what steps are we to take? I see that you have an idea, I replied. Well, I have, or rather it is Tyler's. He suggests a bold step. He thinks that you and I ought to call on Lockhart. There is no question with regard to his position and knowledge. He has done more original work during the last two years in bacteriology than anyone else in the country, and if this terrible brotherhood should worm some secret out of him on a plausible pretext, they may use it to deadly effect making him the unsuspecting agent of a terrible crime. Knowing all that we do, Head, I think we are bound to see him. I thought over Dufrayer's suggestion. I am puzzled to know what to say, was my reply. Lockhart may not like our interfering. 
"'Very possibly, but nevertheless the duty of warning him remains the same.' "'If you feel so, Dufrayer, I have no doubt you are right,' I said. "'When will you go to see Lockhart? I shall, of course, be willing to accompany you.' "'I cannot look him up to-day, for I am unfortunately busy at the courts to the last moment, but I suggest that you and I go to his house to-morrow morning at ten. "'Very well,' I answered. "'I will meet you outside his door at that hour.' A few minutes later I left Dufrayer. Absorbed in anxious thought, I presently found myself in Piccadilly, and then in Bond Street. I walked on slowly. My thoughts were so anxious that they seemed to impede my movements. Madame had returned. Once again she was at work on some hideous machination. Once again Dufrayer and I held our lives in our hands. Knowing the woman as I did, I could scarcely agree with Dufrayer that, emboldened by success, she was becoming less cautious. Never yet was she known to allow her vigilance to sleep and not even in the hour of victory would it fail her. On the face of it, this very open advertisement looked queer, but surely there was more behind. Yes, we must warn Lockhart. He would resent our interfering, but what matter? He was a strong man in every sense of the word, and I rather wondered at Madame selecting him to do her deadly work. I had seen him more than once during the last couple of years. His remarkable genius and the brilliancy of some of his lectures before the Royal Society, returned vividly to my memory. The hour was now between four and five. I suddenly remembered that I had promised to meet a man in some tea-rooms, which had lately been opened in Bond Street. I found the right place, and walked down a long, narrow passage, which opened into a small courtyard surrounded by coffee and tea-rooms of different descriptions. The seclusion and unexpected quiet of the place were refreshing. The soft notes of distant music took my steps upstairs to the first floor, and the next instant I had entered a tea-room, as still and peaceful as if London were miles away. Some girls, tastefully dressed and looking like ladies, were waiting on the visitors. I seated myself at a small table and waited for my friend. I looked at my watch. He was late. I resolved to wait for him for a few moments, but before many had passed one of the young waitresses approached me with a telegram, asking if my name was Head. I replied in the affirmative and tore it open. It was from my friend. He had suddenly been called out of town, and could not keep his appointment. I ordered tea for myself, and leaning back in my chair looked around me. The room was tastefully decorated, with a certain aiming after simplicity, which produced a most inviting effect. My tea was brought on a small tray, and at the same time a girl, very quietly dressed, took the place opposite to mine. My first glance caused me to look at her again. She was the dark-eyed girl whom I had seen that morning coming down Madame Colucci's steps. I observed that her eyes, larger than those of most Englishwomen, wore a strained expression, otherwise she was fresh and young-looking. I poured a cup of tea, and was just raising it to my lips, when she suddenly bent forward. "'I am addressing Mr. Norman Head, am I not?' she said in a low, hurried voice. I bowed coldly in acknowledgment. "'Forgive me,' she said again. "'I know that you are very much surprised at my addressing you, but I must tell you the simple truth.' I meant to speak to you this morning, outside Madame Colucci's house, but I could not summon the courage. I happened to be in Bond Street just now, and saw you passing. You entered here, and I followed you. I know I have taken a very bold step, but I cannot rest until I tell you something. It is not a message of any sort, but it is a word of warning. I made an impatient exclamation. "'If you have anything to say, I must, of course, listen,' I replied. "'But remember, you are a total stranger to me.' "'I will tell you my name,' she said eagerly. "'Valentia Ward. I am Mr. Lockhart's secretary. You know Mr. Lockhart, of 205 Devonshire Street, do you not?' "'By name? Well, you allude to the great bacteriologist?' 
"'Yes,' she answered. "'I have been his secretary for over a year. I work with him every morning in his laboratory. It is about him, and also about you, Mr. Head, that I want to speak.' "'Well, say what you have to say as quickly as possible,' I replied. "'I will do so. Bend forward a little, so that others may not overhear.' She poured herself out a cup of tea as she uttered the last words. Her hand shook slightly. It was a delicate and very small white hand, the blue veins showing under the skin. "'I happen to know,' she continued, "'no matter how or why, that you, Mr. Head, and a certain Mr. Dufrayer, a well-known criminal solicitor, intend to follow up an advertisement which appeared in the Times of this day week. The advertisement was to the effect that a first-rate bacteriologist was required to advise on a matter of a private nature. Mr. Dufrayer has learned, no matter how, that Mr. James Lockhart, of 205 Devonshire Street, has been appointed to undertake the work. It is your intention, and also Mr. Dufrayer's, to call upon him, in order to warn him with regard to some hidden danger. Am I not right?' "'You must forgive me, but I cannot reply to your question.' She smiled very faintly. "'You are a wise man to guard your lips, but your face is my answer,' she said. "'Now I will tell you why I have ventured to speak to you. I want you to give up your intention of calling on Mr. Lockhart.' "'And by what right do you, a complete stranger, interfere with my movements?' "'By the right of my superior knowledge,' she answered at once. "'My reasons I cannot explain, but they are of the gravest character. You and your friend will implicate yourselves most seriously if you do what you intend to do.' You will run into danger if you meddle in this matter. In giving you this warning I risk much myself, and I earnestly beseech of you to believe me and to attend to my words. Do not see Mr. Lockhart. Let the advertisement alone. By doing so you will circumvent—you will circumvent. Her lips trembled. Fire shone in her big eyes. She rose to her feet. I can do no more, she said. If you fail to understand me, I am sorry, but I have at least performed a very painful and necessary duty." She drew down her veil, went to a little table near the door, where an accountant sat, paid for her tea, and left the room. I sat on where she had left me, feeling puzzled and shaken. The girl's face bore the impress of truth, and yet it seemed hard not to believe that she was one of Madame's agents. Had I not actually seen her coming down the steps of Madame's house? She seemed troubled when she spoke. When she pleaded with me, her voice shook with the extreme and passionate eagerness of her words but all these signs might only be put on in order to prevent an interference which madame from long experience had learned to dread when i met dufrayer on the following morning outside lockhart's house i took his arm and walked with him for a moment or two up and down the street i then related briefly the incident of the day before he listened to my words with marked attention what do you think i said when i had concluded that beyond doubt the girl has been employed to warn you was his reply Lockhart's danger is even greater than I was at first inclined to suspect. If he is not very careful, he will find himself in a hornet's nest. Yes, we must warn him immediately. It is past ten. Let us ring the bell. He will probably be at home. In reply to our summons, we were told that Mr. Lockhart was within, and were shown at once into a private room next to his laboratory. He joined us almost immediately. His appearance was already well known to me, but when he entered the room I was struck once again by his remarkable personality. He was a tall and very heavily built man, standing quite six feet, with broad shoulders and a jovial red face, as unlike the typical scientist as man could be. His manner was bluff and hearty, and he had a merry smile, suggestive more of a country squire than of one who spent most of his time over culture plates. "'What can I do for you, sir?' he said genially, extending his hand to me. 
"'Your name, Mr. Head, is not unfamiliar to me, and if I remember right, we were once antagonists in print in a discussion on nitrifying bacteria. I am afraid in the end I had to yield to your superior knowledge, but I should like now to show you a little thing which may change your views.' "'Thank you,' I answered, "'but I have not called to discuss your work. May I introduce my friend, Mr. Defrayer? He and I have come here this morning on a matter which we believe to be of utmost importance. It is of a strictly private nature, and when you have heard what we have both got to say, you will, I am sure, pardon what must seem an unwarrantable espionage. He raised his eyebrows, and looked from Dufrayer to me in some astonishment. I drew a copy of the Times from my pocket, and pointed to the advertisement. As I did so, I noticed for the first time that the door between this room and the next was open, and at the same time the distinct noise of breaking glass came to my ears. "'Pardon me a moment,' said Lockhart. "'My secretary is in the next room, and you would rather that no one overheard us. I will just go to her and ask her to do some work in my study.' Still retaining the copy of the Times in his hand, he entered a large laboratory, where doubtless his own important discoveries were made. "'Ah, Miss Ward!' he exclaimed. "'So you have broken that culture-tube. Well, never mind now. Don't wait to pick up the fragments. I am particularly engaged.' "'There are letters which I want you to copy in my study. You can go there until I send for you.' The light steps of a young woman were heard leaving the room. A door was opened at the farther end and closed again softly. Lockhart returned to us. "'I am fortunate,' he said, "'in having secured as my secretary a most intelligent and clever girl, one in a thousand. At one time she thought of embracing the medical profession, and has studied bacteriology a little herself.' but what possessed her to break a valuable culture-tube just now is more than I can understand. Poor girl, she was quite white and trembling when I went into the room, and yet I am never harsh to her. Her name is Valentia Ward, a pretty creature, and a better secretary than any man I have ever come across. But there, gentlemen, you must pardon my alluding to my own private affairs. The loss of that culture-tube has upset me a trifle, but I shall soon put matters right, and Miss Ward need not have looked so stricken." "'Now, let us attend to business. You speak of an advertisement in this paper. Where is it? Is it to-day's edition?' "'No, the edition of a week back,' I replied. "'I have reason to know, Mr. Lockhart, that you have answered this advertisement. Pray glance your eye over it again. It is in your own interest that my friend and I have come here to-day.' "'I fail to understand,' said Lockhart, a trifle coldly. "'I will gladly explain,' I said. "'We have the strongest reasons for suspecting that these words were inserted,' by a well-known lady doctor, called Madame Colucci. "'Still, I do not perceive your meaning,' he replied. "'Even granted that such is the case. May I ask what business this is of yours?' "'You certainly may. Our business is to warn you against any dealings with that woman.' "'Indeed. But the lady in question is well known, and her scientific attainments are respected by every scientist in the kingdom. I think we must either close our present interview, or I must beg of you to give me a further explanation.' "'As honourable men we can speak quite plainly,' I replied. "'However impossible it may seem to you, I am now prepared to tell you that Madame Colucci is the head of a gang, or secret society, whose headquarters are at present in London. This society is perpetrating some of the most terrible crimes the century has known. I could mention half a dozen which would be familiar to you. Up till now, Madame has eluded justice with a most remarkable ingenuity, but she cannot do so much longer. All my friend and I beg of you is to have nothing to do with her, and, beyond all other things, not to put into her hands, or into the hands of any of her confederates, one or more of the great secrets of bacteriology. You know, as well as I do, how omnipotent such powers would be in the hands of the unscrupulous. While I was speaking, Lockhart's red face became troubled. He wrinkled his forehead, 
and knit his brows. "'What you have told me sounds almost incredible,' he said at last. "'I suppose I ought to be obliged to you, but I scarcely know that I am. You have upset my confidence, and sown doubt where, I must frankly say, I had absolute faith. Since, however, you have spoken to me so frankly, it is but fair that I should tell you what I know of this matter. It is true that I did see an advertisement in the Times and replied to it. Famous bacteriologist, as I doubtless am, I am also a poor man. Pure science, as you know, Mr. Head, brings riches to none. I answered the advertisement, and received almost immediately afterwards a letter from Madame Colucci, asking me to call upon her at her house in Welbeck Street. She received me in her consulting-room, and put a few questions to me. I found her frank and agreeable, and there was nothing in the least sinister, either in her manner or in the disclosures which she was obliged to make to me. She soon perceived that I was admirably adapted to carry out her requirements, said that she would give me the work if I cared to undertake it, and on my promising to do so, proceeded at once to business. I cannot divulge the nature of the research which I am about to make on her behalf, as I am under a solemn vow not to do so, but I can at least assure you that it is a perfectly honourable matter, and the pay, well, the pay is so good that I cannot afford to lose it. Madame Colucci is prepared to give me what may mean a small fortune. But I will tell you this, Mr. Head, if I find out that what you have just said is really the case, and I see the smallest likelihood of my information being used for dishonourable purposes, I shall withdraw. You cannot do more, I answered, and I am much obliged to you for listening to us so patiently. I respect the honesty of your purpose, he said. May I also beg that you will regard what I have just said as strictly confidential? The ghost of a smile flitted across his face. It passed almost immediately. I will, he replied. It seems hard to press you still further, said Defrayer, but, short of abusing any confidence you may have made with Madame Colucci, would it be possible for you to keep us posted in what goes on? I think I may promise that also, and as a preliminary, I may as well say that I expect to leave town at a moment's notice on this very business. I do not know where I am going, for I have not yet received full instructions. It occurs to me that if matters are really as serious as you think them to be, it would be as well for me to go, in order to make Madame Colucci show her hand. Yes, replied Defrayer. You are right there, Mr. Lockhart. The interests involved are so enormous that we shall only be able to defeat our enemies on their own ground. But if you happen to be going to a lonely part of the country, do not, I beg of you, go unarmed, and also communicate freely with Mr. Head or myself. You need have no fear, as our agents and detectives will be ready and alert, and will follow you anywhere. Again that almost imperceptible smile passed across his face. Certainly to look at him, he did not appear to be a man to want much protection in case of a personal encounter. His huge frame towered above Defrayer and myself as he rose and conducted us to the door. "'Well,' said Defrayer, when we got outside, "'what do you think of it all?' "'My own opinion is,' he added, without waiting for me to speak, "'that we shall have them this time.' Madame has not conducted this matter with half of her usual acumen. Her successes have rendered her thoroughly contemptuous of us. Depend upon it, she will soon learn her lesson. And what about Miss Valentia Ward? I cried. From Lockhart's manner he seems to place absolute trust in her, and yet either there is grave mischief ahead, of which we know nothing, or the girl is in Madame's pay. I have not the slightest doubt which way the balance lies, said Defrayer, but Lockhart has been warned by us, and he is quite capable of looking after himself. We could not well betray Miss Ward. Having neglected her advice, we show her very plainly that we do not believe the cock-and-bull story she tried to tempt you with. And yet the girl looked as if she spoke the truth, I answered. Ah, Head, you were always influenced by a pretty face, said Defrayer. Had Miss Ward been old and wrinkled, you would have treated her cool attempt to impose upon you with the harshness it deserves. 
"'She was agitated and upset today, at any rate,' I replied. "'Beyond doubt it was nervousness at suddenly hearing our voices, "'which caused her to break that culture tube.' Dufrayer said nothing further, and I went to my own house. All during the day which followed I could not get either Lockhart or his secretary out of my head, and more than once I congratulated myself upon having acted so promptly under Dufrayer's advice. Having opened Lockhart's eyes, it was scarcely likely that he would be hoodwinked now, and if Madame herself did not fall into our hands, in all probability some of her gang would. Between four and five on the afternoon of that same day, to my great astonishment, Lockhart was shown into my laboratory. His fat face was redder than ever, and he was panting with excitement. "'Ah!' he said when he saw me. "'I hope I am in time. Get ready quickly, Mr. Head.' He took out his handkerchief and began to mop his face. "'I have suddenly received orders to go down from Waterloo, by the 510, to Lymington, in Hampshire, and to bring three broth cultures of a certain bacillus with me. I am to be met at Lymington by a boat. Beyond this I know nothing.' During the day which has passed I have thought more than once of what you have told me, and I will confess that my suspicions are aroused. On receiving this sudden summons, it occurred to me that if you were to accompany me we could see for ourselves what the matter really means, and perhaps be able to frustrate Madame's plans. Can you manage to come? If so, we have not a single moment to lose. My cab is waiting at the door. By Jove, this looks really like business, I said, but I ought to let Dufrayer know. You have no time to do so now. We can barely manage to get the train by going straight off. If we reach Waterloo in time, we can send your friend a telegram from there. True, I answered. I will go with you at once. Lockhart glanced impatiently at his watch. It is more than half-past four, he said. It will be a gallop to the station as it is. I considered for a moment. There was no time to pack anything, and I dared not lose what might be the opportunity that I had so longed to meet. I ran upstairs, put on a Norfolk suit and travelling cap, and thrust a revolver into my pocket. I then joined my companion. "'Is there any chance of your being watched to see if you come down alone?' I said, as our cab dashed along the Marleybone Road. Lockhart turned and stared at me without replying. "'I have not thought of that,' he said at last. "'It is a possible contingency,' I answered. "'I know the wariness of my enemy. Had we not better go down to Lymington in separate carriages? When we get there it will be dark.' and we can start off together without being observed. "'That would be a good plan,' he replied. "'I will go third class. You can go first. The clock pointed to eight minutes past five as we dashed up the incline to Waterloo. We rushed for our tickets, and just as the doors were being closed, were running up the platform towards the train. As I flew past the third-class compartments to my own more luxurious carriage, I fancied I saw in one, marked, Ladies Only, a face pressed against the window and watching me. It was the face of a woman with dark eyes. It appeared for a flash, and then disappeared behind a curtain. My heart sank with sick apprehension. If Valencia Ward were indeed following us to Lymington, there was no doubt whatever that she was one of Madame's accomplices. She knew that I had met Lockhart contrary to her warning, and was now, doubtless, hurrying to Yarmouth to reveal the truth to Madame. The train sped on, and my thoughts continued to be both busy and anxious. The face with its dark eyes pursued me, turn where I would. I now regretted that a certain sense of honour had forbade my telling Lockhart of my suspicions that morning, and I determined to do so when we reached Lymington. There was no change at Brockenhurst, and at half-past eight we drew up at Lymington Pier. Pulling the collar of my Norfolk jacket well up, and drawing down my cap over my eyes, I stepped out. Lockhart passed me, pushed slightly against me in doing so, and slipped a note into my hand. I glanced at this at once." Go in the boat to Yarmouth, and then on to Freshwater. 
I am coming over in a private boat, he wrote. I looked up quickly. Already he was lost in the throng of passengers who had left the train. I had no opportunity to give him any warning. There was nothing for it but to obey his directions, take a ticket to Yarmouth, and hasten on board. In a few moments I found myself steaming down the river and out into the Solent. The sun had set, and the moon would not rise for an hour or two. I stood on deck, looking back at the lights of Lymington as they were reflected in the water. Suddenly I felt someone touch me. I looked round, and Miss Ward was by my side. "'You have disregarded my advice,' she said. "'You are in great danger. Don't land at Yarmouth. Take the return boat to Lymington.' Her voice was so earnest, and there was such a ring of real distress in it, that try as I would, I could scarcely treat her with the harshness which I thought her conduct deserved. "'You are a woman,' I began, but—' "'Oh, I know all that you think of me,' she answered. "'But the risk is too terrible, and my duty too plain, for any harsh judgment of yours to influence me. Go back, go back while there is still time.' "'I cannot understand you,' I said. "'You warn me of some vague danger, and yet you allow Lockhart, the man who employs you, to run into what, according to your own showing, is a trap for his destruction. How can I respect you, or believe your words, when you act in such a manner?' "'I dare not tell you the whole truth,' she answered. "'I wish I had courage. But it means too much. Mr. Lockhart is in no danger. You are. Won't you go back? Won't you be guided by me?' "'No,' I said. "'Where he goes, I will go. His danger is mine also. Miss Ward, you are implicating yourself in the queerest way. You are showing me all too plainly that you are on the side of—' "'You think that I am Madame Colucci's agent?' she answered. "'Well, there is only one way of saving you. I tried yesterday to do what I could. You would not be warned. When I heard your voice and that of your friend in Mr. Lockhart's dining-room this morning, my agitation was so great that I almost betrayed myself. On your behalf I have listened and watched and acted the spy all day. You can scarcely realize what my awful position is. But if you will not yield to my entreaties, I must tell you everything. Just then, a friend whom I happened to know and who lived at Yarmouth came up, uttered an exclamation of astonishment, and drew me aside. He invited me to spend the night with him, but knowing that Lockhart expected me at Freshwater, I declined his invitation. I was glad of the interruption, and kept by his side until we reached the pier at Yarmouth. I then looked round for Miss Ward, but she had disappeared. End of chapter 7, part 1